Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. Hope you're all getting on as well as you can in level three, possibly soon to be moving to another level. Uh, At least we're all in the same boat across the country. Well, I say that, but of course we're not in the same boat. Artist Joe Castlin used that pandemic phrase to great effect in his most recent artwork reset. We're not all in the same boat, but we're in the same storm. I hope you're weathering the storm as well as you can. And that's all we can do with cases rising and more people in hospital. In better news, as you probably know, we started our second season of our Big Night In programme. These are live online events every second Saturday, which we're running until December 12th. We're basically trying to fill your diary with interesting, inspiring events. And we had our first one on Saturday, October 3rd, when we spent an extraordinary hour with Senator Eileen Flynn. And we wanted to bring you some highlights of that event. Eileen began by telling us about her upbringing in Labra Park in Ballyfermot which is the oldest traveller halting site in the country. Growing up in, in Labry, nobody was ever short of, of, of bread or milk. We always depended on each other, you know, and, 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 and that was the lovely thing about it. But also that lovely sense of, of community, you know, people would nearly be able to tell you what colour stockings you put on your feet in the morning, you know. So there were bits of that as well. But um, I, I, I loved it. And then obviously some of the negative stuff was, when you walk outside the gate, that, you know, people didn't understand what it was like inside because, like, when you go outside of Labrie, and I remember one of my one of my earliest memories was going down to the shops in Ballyfermot, Farms, I'm with my mother and feeling, just feeling different, feeling that, you know, that we were getting watched. And even at a young age, you can feel the prejudice, you can feel the the discrimination if you want or even that word that I always use rejection you feel that you're not the same as as everybody else in the shop and you know as as a young as a child of four years of age you don't understand what racism is you don't understand what like you've no clue you just feel different and you don't know why because you look the same you so I couldn't I couldn't really understand it Now, Senator Flynn was just 10 years of age when her mother died and she spoke about that loss and a terrible accident she was involved in around the same time. My mother died on the 12th of October 2000. And uh, like when when you're 10, you, you know, you you don't expect to lose um, your mother and for your life to change dramatically. So uh, she went into hospital on a Tuesday and she was buried on on the Friday, died with pneumonia. Um, my life changed very much from from that moment. You know, I a week after, uh, nine days later, I was in a really bad accident where a person uh, who was drunk drove into the back of me and my uncle and drove us underneath a bus, an eighteen foot bus, and that bus 
hot on my left side and I, I had major operations and many um many minor challenges looking back at it now you know um and I didn't really realize my mother was dead until a few years later because there was so much that was going on in my life and although I missed her and I could feel her with me but you know so much that was going on in my life at at, at that time you know um, and morphine uh, getting operations every few weeks and you know and, and, and looking back at it now I think it made me the person I am today. And our final highlight from the big night in was Senator Eileen Flynn talking about equality of opportunity and why children shouldn't be told that they can be whoever they want to be or whatever they want to be. Like a lot of people would say to me, Roshan, would you would your message be you can be anything you want to be if you put your mind to it? No, you can't. You can't. When you're a member of the traveller community, it gives you less opportunities. Your, uh, your economic background gives you less opportunities. Being a person of colour gives you less opportunities. Being a person with a disability gives you less opportunities. Being a, a migrant person, a refugee person. So we have to be very, very realistic that, uh, you know, or you can go off and be anything you want to be once, once you put your mind to it. That's that's not always the case. And it's 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 not the case for many uh, people and definitely not the case for traveller people. Uh, like, I don't believe there's a such a thing as equality, because for me, I think we're all different and we all have a right to be different. But we all have we're, we all bring equal worth to the world and we all should be valued equally in the world. And we all should have equality of opportunities, you know, and, 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 and I keep on repeating that one message that it's not about equality. I can't straighten my left arm. I, you know, everybody is very different and it's, it's about equality of opportunities and treating people with the level of respect that 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 you treat everybody with you know hope you enjoyed those snippets from what was a brilliant evening and remember if you haven't got tickets they're still available and even getting tickets now you're still going to be able to watch any events you miss back because we'll send you a link so if you don't catch them live you will always be able to watch them this saturday we'll be welcoming editor-in-chief of glamour magazine samantha barry to the big night in and on halloween night that's october 31st the one and only catlin moran will be with us other guests include former state pathologist mary Cat- Orchie broadcaster Claire Byrne and a special surprise guest for our big night in Christmas party on December 12th. For details and to buy tickets, go to irishtimes.com forward slash big hyphen night hyphen in or check out our social media on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at IT Women's Podcast. And if you want to get in touch with us generally about the podcast, remember you can email us the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Now, In the episode today, we're looking a bit further afield to the people who are dealing with a pandemic in crowded refugee camps in Greece. You've probably heard of the 400 Welcomes campaign. It's an all-female campaign group made up of doctors, teachers, writers, community and social care workers and musicians. And following a recent fire in Moriah refugee camp in Lesvos in Greece, over 13,000 people now face the prospect of winter in another overcrowded, under-resourced camp. The humanitarian conditions are bleak and getting worse by the day. 
The people in the camp face all the things you'd expect, inadequate access to food, water and weatherproof shelters. There's a chronic absence of basic humanitarian infrastructure and support and there is limited access to healthcare as well as to education. Less than 6% of children living in the refugee camps on the Greek islands are enrolled in formal ongoing schooling. Irish medical personnel on the ground there predict future preventable loss of life and profound traumatic psychological impact. The campaign 400 Welcomes is calling on the Irish government to bring 400 people from Lesbos to Ireland and is calling for their relocation outside of the system of direct provision that continues to deny asylum seekers social, economic, political and civil rights. The campaign's decision to select 400 as the number for relocation was an iteration of the Irish 100,000 Welcomes and it's a figure they think is reasonable and doable. Amazingly, the government originally said they would take only four unaccompanied minors and now it says they're going to take 50 men, women and children. One of the women behind this campaign is Quiva Butterly, a human rights campaigner who's been fighting for justice all over the world for most of her adult life. Originally from Dublin, she was inspired by her parents to look outside her own comfortable circumstances and fight for the most vulnerable. And that's what she spends her time doing most recently with the 400 Welcomes campaign. We spoke about her interesting family background, her motivation, her hopes for the campaign and the ways her campaigning has changed since she became a mother. I began by asking Quiva to tell me all about 400 Welcomes and how it started. So we're a group of women from different parts of the country that have worked in voluntary capacities in refugee camps over the past six or seven years. Um, And amongst us are medics and teachers and social care workers and musicians and artists. And people have worked in different capacities in the camp. Um, But I think the thing that has united us post the recent fire three weeks ago in Moria refugee camp was a feeling that the urgency of the situation on the ground necessitated a more urgent response on a public and civil society level. So what we're trying to do is translate what we perceive to be a lot of empathy and hospitality and potential welcome in Ireland um, and communities in Ireland into political will and uh, more robust political support and to up numbers from what was initially announced uh, for unaccompanied children who would be relocated to Ireland which has now been increased to 50 um, people within families to yeah, what we're calling for, which is 400. Well, just tell us a bit more about the fire and about how devastating that was to people there, just so people can get an, an, an idea of that. So in many ways, the fire in Moria was sort of burning metaphorically, symbolically for years prior to the actual fire. Um, It's a camp that was created as a detention facility um, for 3,100 people. Um, At its its sort of height um, over the past few years, um, there have been over 22,000 people um, in what was supposed to be a space of transit um, when it was used post 2015 as a transit spot for people seeking refuge in Europe, but became a place of containment um, and of indefinite limbo. So I've met people over the years who have been stuck there, you know, for a good couple of years. The conditions in the camp um, were really bleak um, on numerous different levels, on a humanitarian level, a lack of water and sanitation systems, a lack of proper nutrition, a lack of shelter. Um, And then on top of that, um, the, the psychological, emotional, 
emotional, existential, um, and I'd say spiritual impacts, you know, of living in a place in which your humanity is negated. Um, and that translates into, at its probably most extreme side of the spectrum, um, a lot of acute distress, um, a lot of PTSD symptomology. Um, MSF, you know, has been saying for years that children as young as seven were self-harming, um, suicide attempts of 10-year-olds, um, and a lot of despair. Um, and then amongst that as well, sort of on top of that, because people are in and have been in this place of enforced dependency, it means spending hours of every day in queues, lining up for inadequate food, um, you know, spending five, six hours in a line to try and access medical care for your highly feverish child, um, you know, lining up for legal appointments, etc. So a lot of people's experience at that camp was defined by waiting. Um, so in a way, when it finally, when it finally actually burned, because it's been on fire, you know, symbolically, but also there's been hundreds of fires over the past few years um, that have been the results of um, electrical faults because there wasn't adequate electricity. So people, you know, to try and make fans work or heat heaters work, um, yeah, would get it from the mains. Um, but but there was a hope when it actually burned that something better would come in its place, that there would be actual political will in terms of response, that people would be evacuated as they should have been years ago. Um, but instead, in its absence, there's now basically Moria 2.0, as it's being called by NGOs on the ground, which is another camp which is highly exposed to the elements in which, mm -hmm. you know, it's just ripe for the spread of COVID, most definitely, and again, in which people's fundamental human rights are being negated. In terms of Greece and the kind of welcome there for the people coming from, say, Syria or Afghanistan, it was much more welcoming. And do you think there's a certain amount of the fatigue has kicked in among locals? How is that impacting the people there? It's had multiple impacts. Um, and as you rightly pointed out, you know, at its height, like I've been going back and forth to Moria and, and to Lesbos since 2014, and I've seen different iterations of, you know, a time in which there was an immense depth, you know, really of hospitality and welcome and solidarity. And, you know, the, the, all of those images that came up, sort of the more iconic ones of, you know, sort of grandmothers at the shore, you know, knitting sweaters to welcome, you know, to try and keep children warm as they got off the boats. Um, the fisher people going out in their, you know, the fishing boats, um, and Lesbos, as well as unfortunately having become the site of a lot of overt fascism over the past years, also had um, a history of leftist organizing. You know, so there was a lot of cultures of solidarity that grew up in various different iterations on the island. Um, and that shifted, you know, and part of that, yes, was a fatigue, you know, vis-a-vis -vis, um, the impact on the island of a lot of people remaining stuck there. Um, but part of that was very deliberate um, organization of the right. Um, and yesterday's verdict in Athens, you know, that criminalized the Golden Dawn and criminalized an overtly fascist political party that, that have killed people um, is, I think, a sign, hopefully, in Greece, of there being a reckoning that the ground that has been gained, you know, which is not just tired islanders sort of talking about the impacts on the tourist trade, but was something a lot more deeper and violent than that and was visited out, you know, on the bodies of, of people who had already survived so much um, in fleeing war and persecution and um, lots of other reasons for fleeing. Um, but, but one of the most, I'd say, um, 
sort of encouraging things, certainly, that, that has happened in Lesbos in the past years have been these sort of self-organized spaces of islanders coming together and cooking big pots, pots of food and, you know, just trying to show a, a symbolic, you know, practical welcome to people um, and trying to create these little spaces of refuge within an environment across the EU, you know, in which people have faced a lot of um, of othering, you know, and, and a lot of rejection, which cuts deep, um, particularly for people, I think, who, you know, have survived a lot um, and have very deep dignity and self-reliance and capability, um, you know, and hopes and dreams held in very fragile hands to then, you know, be received, I think, with the amounts of the criminalizing discourse that has gone on in Europe. Um, you know, people are very painfully, viscerally aware of, of how they're being presented. Um, and it hurts. 400 Welcomes is a female-led sort of movement, I think it's fair to say. And and it's interesting because there's tens of thousands of women of all ages that have been volunteering and working in camps like Moria. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how it's become this quite women-strong um, movement to help? It's it's been in a way not quite an antidote but an anathema at least to sort of EU migration policies of externalization you know and containment um, in the sense that there has been this amazing response over the past seven years and I've witnessed that you know with a lot of maybe like poignancy because on the one hand you know I'm working oftentimes with survivors of torture and sexual gender based violence and you know people for whom this journey um, in which they risk literally their lives you know in votes to try and undertake it, um, you know, have come searching for a, a dignity, you know, a right to security, you know, in, in terms and, and a possibility in terms of rebuilding their lives. And that's absent on a political level, but on, on a civil society, on a, you know, on a grassroots level, um, there have been women, you know, from from 85 year olds that I met to 16 year olds, this one amazing young volunteer um, from Brazil um, called Gabi Chapazian, who came to Lesbos with her mother in 2016 to volunteer for 45 days and is still there. Um, and, you know, and 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 there has been such, I think, an outpouring of um people deciding, you know, watching this from afar, watching the headlines and, you know, the, the news clips um, that they need to embody an alternative, you know, an alternative, not only of humanitarian response, but a response that affirms people's rights. Um, another example of that is the feminist um, ship that is now in the Mediterranean, funded by Banksy, captained by the amazing German captain Pia Klemp um, and her all-woman crew, um, and yeah, and a lot of folks, you know, and, and I say women in a very uh, trans-inclusive context, you know, that, that we're talking about a broad community of people who have responded, I think, with an empathy um, and a deep commitment because it's hard, you know, and, and that's something that we tried to convey this morning in the doll briefing. But, you know, the visceral witness of this is one of death. And all of us have been present in contexts, you know, where toddlers are being resuscitated, you know, on, on, on frigid shores of children in hypothermic shock, you know, of, of families who are, you know, I've been present with a father, you know, grieving over the lifeless body of his daughter. And because she was underwater a few moments too, too much, too many. Um, so, so there are, I think there's a lot of positive that has gone on in the last few years, but none of us are under the illusion, you know, in a way that the risks that, that are entailed in this journey are getting any lesser. Um, and that's being borne out by the statistics, you know, tens of thousands of people dying preventable deaths.
Quiva, can I ask you a little bit about yourself? Because you're quite the force of nature. You're involved in human rights and social justice. You've been moving between Haiti, Guatemala, Mexico, Palestine, Iraq for 15 years and the past six years in the various refugee camps in Europe, in Greece, in Calais, Italy, in the Balkans. Um, you're an educator and a trainee psychotherapist and you have quite an interesting background of what led you to all of that. So can you maybe tell us about growing up and where that kind of thirst for helping uh, these communities came from? It's, it's, it's actually, I'm rarely asked personal questions these days. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I, I, my mishmash of an accent is, is probably, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's my own, yeah, my own history of migration. So I, I'm, I'm Irish by birth. I was born here. Um, and then my parents immigrated to Canada when I was one. So I spent my childhood in Canada. Um, and then when I was 12, my family moved to Mauritius because uh, my parents worked in various different forms of international development over the years. Um, and then we moved to Zimbabwe. Uh, and then I ended up uh, in New York um, and went to Latin America intending to take uh, sort of a, a gap year of sorts and then eventually go to college, but um, got involved in uh, sort of human rights work and witness there with communities of displaced people in Guatemala um, and then Chiapas in Mexico. And and then I think my life sort of took a trajectory um, of, as you mentioned, sort of human rights, social justice, primary health care, education work for a good chunk of time, a lot of that with refugees and displaced communities. And then I went back to college in my 30s and got a couple of masters in a row and you know sort of went through a more formal education path um but in terms of the common strands um i think part of that was formative my parents were very involved in sort of liberation theology um you need to explain liberate liberation theology what is that it's is it religion of some kind so so it's it's sort of the yeah probably the more social justice orientated um yeah um side of of the catholic church um and it was in in my parents i think sort of raising as a as a, within that milieu um it was very much sort of about solidarity and empathy and sort of stripped back away from dogmatic you know patriarchal you know overarching themes into i think just a lot of emphasis on love um and and compassion um so i grew up in that and i also went to i had the the privilege of going to a number of schools where i had really strong women role models um, and sort of mentors who sort of took me seriously um, when I think back to it as, you know, sort of a, yeah, just a, a fiery 14 year old, you know, who, who wanted to see, yeah, systemic change in the world and who was really saddened, you know, but, but in a very deep way, um, I think, by what I was beginning to read and, and interact and engage with. Um, but I'd say within that also, which is something maybe that that this present generation of whom I work with a lot of teenagers and they're absolutely stupendously amazing as we've seen in the past years in Ireland um, and elsewhere. Um, but also there wasn't this sort of barrage of information I think that exists now. So books were really seminal influences on, on my political formation. But I remember reading the diary of Anne Frank as a very young child and then Franz Fanon as a teenager and like these seminal sort of texts that they just made things sort of click. Um, but yeah, so migration and in a way, I think that theme of of knowing in a very different way with all of the privileges, you know, that I carried in terms of mobility and passport, um, you know, and racial and that that within that and conscious of that privilege, um, I also have, have had a taste of what sort of dislocation and reformation of identity feels like, you know, when you transition from one geographical, linguistic, cultural context to another. Um, so as much as the suffering of those that we're responding 
doing the injustice of their journeys is is so much more than I've ever even had a glimpse of in terms of personal life. What I do understand, I think, is the necessity of welcome um, and how deep an experience that is for people. And oftentimes when you read sort of the accounts of the kinder transports and, you know, of other migratory processes that have gone on in contemporary history um, that, that, you know, very old elders now speak to the one seminal memory that they have on that, which is a farmer passing, you know, an apple through a window or somebody stopping and smiling and receiving, you know, people with, with warmth and with respect. Um, and more than anything, I think that that is what this oftentimes, you know, woman-led movement, um, you know, of sort of volunteers and solidarity activists is trying to embody, you know, but a welcome that is not predicated on pity, um, you know, but a welcome predicated on deep, profound respect for their survival and their courage. So it's basically all your parents' fault. We can blame them for everything, even the good things. Do, do they, um, were they worried about you when you began this kind of, you know, adventurous in some ways and dangerous in others because you have been shot at? Um, you might tell us a bit about that as well. You've been shot you've been in da- very dangerous situations did they kind of worry that they'd made you into too much of a do-gooder <laughs> I they I, it's only now that I have my own son and I'm sure every yeah person who's had uh, interesting lives can attest to this but now that I have my own child I can only imagine um but yes no most definitely and I think in a way part of you know my my, my family's experience of the traumatic experiences you know that I lived amongst in terms of war you know had most definitely impact, um, I think, on my family as a whole. And and they've been very supportive and gracious and loving within that. But but I, I've really, yeah, just had to almost reckon with, you know, the, and particularly now, you know, in, in four years into to training as a psychotherapist, but the intergenerational aspect of experiences and how they're carried, you know, within families. Um, but within that, I think it was also probably at the time when I was living in places like Chiapas, it was pre-cell phones, you know, so sometimes months would pass, you know, as a 19 year old in which I just, I wouldn't be in contact because I'd be in a village, you know, in the middle of nowhere, a 10 hour trek from the nearest town. So they had amazing, I think, um, forebodings, you know, and courage and patience um, with their daughter who sort of went AWOL uh, and who had intended to come back after a year of this and and it morphed into to decades. Um, but yeah, no, they, they, they have been amazing. Um, but yes, I, I'm, Definitely. I, I, I carry the guilt. Um, but yeah, it's... <laughs> do you have any siblings? I do. Yeah, beautiful siblings. But we're all, again, it's it's migration and probably growing up, you know, in different contexts. We all live in different countries, unfortunately. Um, but my sister had a beautiful little baby during lockdown called Kaya. Um, and she lives on an organic farm in Devon. She's part of this great movement called the Landworkers Alliance. And the, because we couldn't see her, we couldn't meet her or be there for her for the first few months, we all went there for a month in August and we were sort of teasing her that her village had arrived because literally our whole extended family just landed um, on the farm and did what we had wanted to do for months before, which was, yeah, just cook and clean and hold and make food and have fun. And, um, but yeah, no, lovely. How many are there in the family? So we're four and I'm, I'm the eldest by a good eight years. So yeah, I, I think I yeah, had experiences of, of having my siblings on my hip and sort of maybe being perceived as, yeah, sort of a, another parent for a small portion of their life. <laughs> and are they all doing something that would be considered, you know, from a social conscience point of view? Is that kind of, is it all, is there anyone that's a big corporate moneymaker? <laughs> Maybe the next generation. Um, I, I, I hope. You can fingers crossed, Quiva. <laughs> Maybe my dosage. Um, I can 
fund fund the revolution uh, or fund, fund <laughs> yeah humanitarian response work and a couple of search and rescue ships if he ever goes down that path um you know we're, we're all we're all sort of on on similar similar but different paths so my um one brother works um with survivors of torture and asylum seekers predominantly unaccompanied children in scotland my brother um worked with refugee communities for years and now is a freelance journalist in belfast and then my sister in devon uh, co-coordinates the land, land workers alliance which is about food but it's also about community social justice um and yeah so so my mother actually i think both of my parents really hope that that we could yeah my, my mother oftentimes complains you know in, in a in a light-hearted way but at christmas that that we never talk about anything but sort of politics or human rights or social justice like come on guys just play a board game and um but yeah i think it's yeah formative as i said it's their fault if they didn't want that they should have been so cool and uh you know good themselves how much does the religion come into it i'm interested in that because the catholic religion in this country has had such a bad rap um in so many ways when we think of the abuse scandals we think of just the again the patriarchal side of it and the dominance that it had in this country particularly over women uh, it sounds like the, the way your parents taught you religion or the way it was uh, given to you was a was a much more kinder, generous, kind of broader church than, than the traditional one we're used to. Do you still keep that spiritual flame alive in yourself or have you moved on from that? It's an interesting question. I, I have, um, I'm in the process of trying to support a beautiful Syrian family. I'll digress for a second and then it will make sense, but who um, I, I worked with in Moria and other contexts and who is in the process of making a very difficult journey um, across the Balkans. And they've been work, walking for 14 days with a feverish five-year-old on their back and the father, Ahmed, who's 72 years old. And um, and they're amazing. And, and I hate predicating, I think, people's migratory journeys by their professions because I, I am very conscious of this whole sort of good migrant, you know, the, the, yeah, the, these dichotomies that are presented. Um, but, but I will say that just because it is so much part of their identities, you know, Hala, who's an engineer, her sister, who's a musician, her mother, who's a principal, was a principal of a school. And the journey has been really horrific for the past two weeks. And there, there was actually just before I got on, I finally got a call from them, but five days, the last five days have passed without any word from them. And, um, the last that I had heard was a call in which they were all being crammed into the back of a thankfully ventilated van, um, 32 of them with other families that, you know, could had capacity for 10. And for the first time last night, I was grasping for, you know, just because I've all, all my friends are sort of sending intentions or prayers or, you know, whatever is, is the language through which people communicate love. Um, but I was grasping for something to try and because I stayed awake all night just just with this visceral fear, but also shame, you know, that this whole campaign had it begun three weeks earlier. Maybe they could have been included, you know, in, in this quota. Um, but it was interesting because like prayers that I haven't said in like years just just came to mind. And 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 it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm most definitely, you know, a leftist and and I have a, a deep critique after having witnessed politicized versions of religion and how dogma, you know, can become such a dominant, you know, point of oppressive power. But I, I do see, I think, the depth and beauty, you know, when spirituality can be held with humility, you know, when it can be held with love and whatever that expression is, whatever those words around it, you know, whatever, you know, the, the iconography or the lack of, you know, it. I think it just all comes back to this core, you know, desire in us all to have meaning, um, you know, and to have something in a way 
that can remind us of the humility in the way that the pandemic is of our bodies, you know, the humility of, of our beings. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I was lying in bed and my little boy had, had crawled in in the middle of the night and and I just had this this sort of catastrophized images in my head of, you know, the other deaths that we've witnessed over the years and these bright, beautiful, brave people, um, you know, just caught in this, yeah, choiceless choice of this journey. Um, but yeah. You are listening to The Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Chocolate to savour. Going back to 400 Welcomes then, um, we on your website there's an 18-year-old Syrian girl, I think because you're also a filmmaker, you've shot some lovely videos of people telling their stories. And she says, we escaped war in Syria to face a psychological war here. I would rather return to Syria and die there than die slowly here. And that kind of shows how terrible the conditions are, even when you're you know on the brink of perhaps getting a new life, but you're stuck somewhere. Uh, in that choiceless choice, as you so well describe it. At the time of a pandemic and when Ireland, like the whole world is, is grappling with such a huge uh, issue that as as COVID, is it more difficult for someone like you and for a campaign like 400 Welcomes to land? Or have you found that we're more in the midst of a more of a solidarity space that we can actually hear those messages even more deeply? I think both end. Um, and that was something that really occurred to us when we were launching this, you know, and by launch, I mean, you know, like we stayed up for 10 days, you know, sort of, you know, scripting, you know, scripts and making a website, etc. Like it was very DIY and very last minute. And it involved a group of about 20 women, seven with sort of continuity and a lot of communication, but a broader network of us as well. We were very conscious of it, of the fact that it could go either way, you know, that, that the pandemic might have created a pause or a space, you know, for empathy with people, you know, for whom borders now are a reality, you know, in our area of hypermobility and the luxury of our passports, you know, and, and that ability to travel, you know, on a whim somewhere suddenly having been dramatically stopped, um, that that might open up more space for people thinking about what it means to be separated from, you know, loved family members or partners or friends or, you know, for years at end. Um, and then and then there's also the other reality, which is sort of the more insular sort of hyper focus on the everyday, you know, sort of debriefs, et cetera, here, plus the rise of a nascent right, you know, in Ireland and the accommodation that I think has gone on politically to that, unfortunately. Um, so 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 far, the, the response has been beautiful. There's been over 20,000 emails, you know, sent to sort of TDs and local representatives um, within a period of 10 days. Um, there's been a lot of great folks, I think, of real social conscience um, who have public platforms like Denise uh, Chayla and Hosier um, and different comedians and a lot of really I think folks have deep integrity so that when they speak to ju- issues of social justice, you know, they, they resonate with people as well. Um, there's been uh, the, the stall debriefing this morning that was attended by a whole sort of plethora of different political parties. Um, and and also, you know, sort of support from surprising quarters, um, you know, in, in terms of public support. So it, it, it's, I think it will be a slow burn. Um, I think, you know, the upping from four to 50 was a great positive first step that we welcome. Um, but in a country, you know, with the capacity that exists here, you know, despite a, a housing crisis, obviously, we're really trying to message the fact that this is not a zero sum game, you know, that you can respond with justice um, to people facing homelessness or housing crises in a country and you can respond with justice to people, you know, facing a very similar 
with different, you know, precarity um, and and houselessness, you know, countrylessness um, from from lots of other contexts as well. Quiver, does the pandemic make it easier for the government to drag its heels on this? Like, is it a is it something they can use to say, look, we can't be worrying about other people coming in. We have our own population to deal with. Have you come up against that? Not overtly yet. We're expecting it and we sort of prepped ourselves. So I think a lot of, you know, sort of the talking points that we had sort of discussed and mind mapped that we might sort of get met with, um, they haven't materialized yet. Um, And I think that is uh, for a whole host of different reasons. But we're very conscious that oftentimes, unfortunately, governments hide behind what sounds like quite complex language. And I've noticed that in in the more negative responses um, or sort of the kicking the tin down the road responses that have been delivered you know to those TD emails um, in the sense of trying to make the process sound more complex than it is and it isn't this has already been done so there is an existing infrastructure to relocate people um, efficiently effectively quickly from Greece um, and that I think is sort of being negated and denied and in a way previous figures um, you know under the comparatively very low quota that Ireland is a country despite you know performing well on some human rights you know and humanitarian issues on an international stage in terms of welcoming people in terms of the profound injustice of direct provision, um, Ireland could do so much more. Um, and towards that, the the way that it's being presented in some of the official responses that we've gotten is not saying we can't respond to this because of the, the present current pandemic situation. It, it's, it's actually sort of saying we're on this, you know, and, and so it quotes these figures that have no relevance to what we're calling for. So it quotes and over 1000 people have already been relocated and that's great, but that's not what we're calling for. We're calling for an urgent you know, direct evacuation and response from Lesbos. The conditions in the camps you, you described as being so bad. Is there a sort of a normalization of that? Have we come be, have we become a bit immune to it? Like maybe at the beginning when this situation was happening, various big stories that came in the media and there was shock and there was a real sense of horror about it. But it's almost does it feel a bit like there's so much of it, we're so used to seeing it now that we've become slightly immune. And do we need to make sure we're never complacent about that? Yes. And, and I think that's, it's a really good point. And it's also a struggle that we've, we've sat with. And I know I've personally sat with over the years, you know, thinking is film a medium, you know, is, is the written word a medium? Are the testimonies of people who have worked on the ground or have made the journey a medium? And and it, it's, it's a really hard balance because I think, you know, we're very conscious of the need to, in a way, portray the trauma, um, you know, and and the injustice and the suffering, but we're also very conscious of that that feels at this stage almost like a disloyalty to the people that we're trying, whose, whose narratives we're trying to amplify because it diminishes them down into their suffering, you know, it predicates their human lived experience on suffering instead of resilience and courage and beauty and creativity. Um, so it's something that a lot of search and rescue personnel, you know, in the Mediterranean whose work has been effectively criminalized and, and, and yet that is being challenged legally and, you know, through activism in trying in tra- trying to portray, you know, how essential that is, because in the absence of NGO search and rescue ships and activist search and rescue ships, you know, people will die. Um, but but it, it, it's always, you know, the question of the image. And, and I think as somebody who makes film, I, I have a lot of ethical questions around, you know, ethical sort of yeah, just ethos of, of accountability, you know, to the people whose lives we're trying to provide glimpses into and and around, you know, in the same way that I think as a parent now, 
um, you know, I would be horrified if, if, if there was a car crash in Ireland and if the victims of that who happened to be children, if their images were used in any way, you know, to try and elicit public sympathy around a campaign. And I think too easily, a lot of human rights campaigns do use imagery, you know, which reduces people down to moments of crisis. And there's an aspect, I think, of almost humiliation within that and of denying of agency. So so we're trying to think through this campaign, you know, we're thinking carefully about images that we use and how do we make sure that images that we use are accountable and that they're honest, you know, and that they're honest that as bleak and all as the conditions in the camps are, there's also beauty, you know, there's also music, there's also joy, there's survival, you know, there's camaraderie, there's humour. Um, and, and that is as much an aspect that we've all witnessed as, you know, the bleak humanitarian conditions just life if, if there's people listening which I know there will be who are feeling like what can I do to help how can I get involved what would you suggest that people can do because obviously everyone's dealing with their own struggles at the moment um but that doesn't mean you can't also be helping with something else so what can people do I'd say primarily to try and keep political pressure, most definitely on the government at the moment, to make it an issue that is relevant enough for other political parties as well, you know, to take up seriously. Um, I think the Dahl debriefing this morning was was a good indication that there is good energy, you know, around people, you know, making certain commitments and following through on them. Um, I'd say, you know, sort of organizing in local communities, specifically vis-a-vis direct provision, because as much as I'm talking about, you know, people coming to Ireland from context, you know, of camps, Throughout Europe, it is so important to address, you know, the injustice and the call by Massey and other movements to abolish direct provision. And and in, in the meantime, to really try and meaningfully reach out to people, you know, and create conditions of dignity, of community around people who experience a lot of isolation, you know, as the system oftentimes is designed um, to, to, yeah, to create. Um, and then I'd say, you know, potentially, you know, in, in, in the, the interim, um, for people also to look at things like the community sponsorship model, um, which has been, um, and, and it's not to take responsibility, I think, off of governments and states to respond, um, you know, vis-a-vis much more robust quotas. But there are, yeah, there's a lot of evidence that that in terms of inclusion, actual, you know, meaningful justice-based social inclusion, that the community sponsorship model works really well. Um, and then I'd say, you know, within that as well, just, just, just pushing back against what you just referred to in terms of that normalization and in a way conceptually bringing what's going on in the Mediterranean and the Aegean that little bit closer, you know, to our, our island country, um, you know, and recognizing that I think that the seas of solidarity that can unite us are infinitely yeah, deeper than, you know, just these, these, these divides that are overemphasized, um, you know, and politicized. Reva, you mentioned you have a small son. Yeah. And are you based in Dublin at the moment or where are you based? Yeah. Or are you a world traveller still? Yeah, yeah. Based in Dublin. Yeah. Um, sort of similar to your mom at Christmas asking, will you play a board game? Do you ever get to switch off? Um, do you ever get to uh, not think about these things? Or is it just, do you just accept that you are consumed by them 24 hours a day? Or if you do switch off, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a good question. It's actually one that I was amidst my four a.m. sort of yeah, just thoughts last night. I was grappling with as I as I looked at my sleeping little tyke or big tyke. But um, yeah, I, I'm I'm very conscious um, of the fact that I think I go through sort of sporadic not not spins because I and 
this has been the advantage actually of doing the psychotherapy training after having worked in NGOs for years, just really, yeah, just slowing down, even though I'm speaking very quickly now, but breathing and pausing and just, yeah, just trying to be in a much more grounded space vis-a-vis the people that I'm working with, um, but also vis-a-vis myself. Um, so within that, I think that that I try to buffer some of the aspects of the visceral violence, you know, when, when I'm responding to calls, you know, of torture survivors or people in crisis. But I'm also very conscious that it does, particularly as a single parent, I think seep, you know, into Tyke's um, imagination and his sphere. And I, I remember, so he comes back and forth to me to camp contexts that are safe enough, you know, for him to be in, in country contexts that are safe enough. Um, and, and I do so partially, I do that partially for pragmatic reasons, but my parents or his dad aren't looking after him, you know, if, if, if they're busy or working, um, but partially because I wanted him to be able to equate, you know, what he overhears in interviews like this, or, you know, if, if I'm on sort of conference calls to, to 400 welcomes people, but I wanted him to have a counterbalance that also had normalcy somewhere in that frame. So playing football with little kids and, you know, creating art and climbing trees and so that he had his own narrative around it as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, to be honest, it is sort of quite all consuming. And yet I feel in terms of the, the spaces of time that I'm creating around that, that downtime, they become more intentional as I recognize the absolute necessity of them because the proximity, I think, to burnout that we all face, you know, particularly 20 something years into this work now, I've been lucky. I think that, you know, I have amazing resourcing. You know, my mother is a psychotherapist who works a lot, you know, with survivors of political violence and trauma. You know, I I have a supervisory sort of process. Like I've got a lot of good resourcing in my environment, but sometimes it is overwhelming. So the sea is my resource. I go, I go out for very long sea walks, um, the rain, uh, and and it almost has to be elemental and, and very deep, very profound friendships and community, you know, with people who are very dear to me as well. Um, but but childhood in itself, you know, I find it's the ultimate great distractor because you just get sucked down into a world of imagination and Lego and um, survival huts and campfires. And yeah, no, he, he's been my anchor and in a really beautiful way, you know, and, and my liberator too. I, I found the whole experience of parenting really interesting on so many levels but also there's there's been a a beautiful freedom within it of love that that i found really yeah very deep that i'm very grateful for Quiva, if you could wave a magic wand tomorrow in terms of moria and all of those places and the 400 welcomes what is a realistic thing do you think that you would just love to happen that you think can happen in terms of people being let into ireland or helped I think on a pragmatic sort of practical level, it would be sort of what we're calling for, which we think is doable and reasonable, um, if we're going to use that language, um, and the right thing to do, um, and the humane and just thing to do as well. So it would be that that evacuation and relocation. On a, on a broader level, um, it would be it would be sort of sea change, changes systemically, you know, policy-wise. Um, and then on a societal level, I think really just people just sitting, you know, with being able to see themselves in the other, you know, and being able to see a reflection or an echo of their lives, of their dreams, of their vulnerabilities, you know, in in the lived experiences and survival of people. And if anything, I think the pandemic, you know, in this pause might facilitate a little bit more of that, you know, there, there's less distraction from, you know, just the very, yeah, just deep injustice that unfortunately exists, you know, home and, and abroad. 
Um, but yeah, and a lot more women leading this process because, yeah, I think, and, and it's not to say that there aren't plenty of women enacting yeah, bad policies, um, but I, I think it's just a very different way of doing politics and of understanding freedom, you know, past basic humanitarian need into much more expansive freedom. Fiva, thank you so much for coming on and we'll hopefully have you back on again when, when things are a bit better uh, and that you've succeeded even more in your campaign. Uh, and I'm you. sure lots of people will, listening will, will want to get in touch. And just tell us the website. Uh, so it's www.400welcomes.org. Yeah, and tell your daughters to keep on singing. Their their songs are so gorgeous. They bring us a lot of joy. Yeah. I will. Oh God, they love that. <laughs> thank you so much, Quiva. We'll talk to you again. That was Quiva Butterly there. And if you want more information on the 400 Welcomes campaign, just go to 400welcomes.org. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 